Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. We got to spend the week of Thanksgiving with good friends that we met when I was in seminary. It's become a tradition, and it is a wonderful tradition. And while much of our time was spent playing games, watching movies, exploring Abilene, cooking together, and of course, marveling about how much our kids have grown since the last time we saw each other, my two former classmates and I inevitably spent some time discussing church business, much to the chagrin of our spouses. And one of the topics we addressed was how challenging the series of parables we have heard over the last few weeks have been to preach. One of my friends, who is the Episcopal chaplain at the University of Oklahoma, used the word brutal to describe them. He also said that they were kicking his butt. <laughs> now, I wasn't quite willing to go that far, until I realized that I haven't had to preach since All Saints Sunday. <clears throat> and y'all, there is a brutality, or at least a severity, to all of these texts from the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. From the implicit embrace of selfishness in the parable of the wise and foolish maidens, to the evident unfairness in the parable of the talents. Is there any harsher statement in scripture than from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away? And the tone of today's parable is similar. The stark and categorical separation of the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous, it feels comfortless at best and cruel at worst. And yet it feels problematic to dismiss or judge these parables simply because they make us feel uncomfortable, simply because we don't like the vibes, as the kids might say. So let's do our best to leave aside the scary bits and take a moment to try and discern the overall message of Matthew 25. Because all of these parables seem related, don't they? On their face, these parables appear to be cautionary tales about responsibility and preparedness. The overriding message seems to be that we should avoid being, being like those bridesmaids who forgot the extra oil, or the slave who buried his master's talent in the ground. And one could view this morning's text through a similar lens. We need to avoid ending up like those people who failed to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and welcome the stranger. The underlying message of these parables appears to be this. At the end, there will be those who are prepared and those who are not. And we should do as much as we possibly can to end up in that first group. Because the people over here, they seem to be in pretty big trouble. And as harsh as it can be, 
This interpretation has an appealing, if not straightforward, quality because it assumes that our efforts to make our way through the world will be rewarded. If we prepare diligently, risk appropriately, and maybe even show some compassion every once in a while, we will be successful in this life and in the life to come. And if you think about it, this jibes pretty well with the way our faith is understood in the popular imagination. As far as most people are concerned, the Christian life is basically about holding ourselves to exacting standards in order to attain a heavenly reward. The problem (laughs) is that this interpretation arguably misses the point of the parable. (laughs) When we read the parables, the question we should be asking ourselves is not... What are we being told to do? But rather, what does this parable reveal about the kingdom of God? What does this parable reveal about the kingdom of God? And if we ask this question, we are led to some some surprising places. At the center of this parable is the figure of a king meeting out judgment to those who come before him. And while we might assume that the king is a stand-in for God or the Son of Man, let's leave that assumption aside for now so we can pay closer attention to the plot, as it were. The king's judgment hinges on how the person before him treated him when he was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, or in prison. And what is endlessly interesting to me is that both the righteous and the unrighteous are surprised to learn that there were times when the king suffered from these conditions. Both the sheep and the goats ask, when was it? that we cared for you or failed to care for you in these circumstances. And it is the king's response that reveals the true nature of this parable. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Now, one message to derive from the king's response is that you never know who the person you are mistreating or bad-mouthing is related to, and so you should probably be on your best behavior at all times. I find this to be particularly good advice in Abilene. (laughs) (laughs) But on a deeper level, this response reveals that the king in this story believes himself to be on the same level as the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, and the marginalized. There is no distinction between them as far as the king is concerned. They are equally worthy of attention and care. And ultimately, this is the power of this parable. 
The power of this parable is that it challenges us in the words of our baptismal covenant to respect the dignity of every human being. And it's here that we see the truly radical nature of this text and of our faith. Because the notion that all human beings are worthy of dignity and respect, it wasn't a common view until Christianity came along. Certainly, the Israelites believed that, but in the Greco-Roman world, not so much. The theologian David Bentley Hart describes the process in this way. We see in Christianity, he writes, something beginning to emerge from darkness into full visibility. Arguably, for the first time in our history, the human person as such, invested with an intrinsic and inviolable worth, an infinite value. Now, this assumption is so fundamental to our experience that it's hard to fathom how revolutionary it was in the ancient world. The pagan worldview depended on order and hierarchy. The educated classes believed that those of high degree were entitled to their status in life, while those without status were worthy of contempt, that they deserved to be at the bottom. As Hart observes, it is practically impossible for us today to appreciate the magnitude of the scandal that many pagans naturally felt at the bizarre prodigality with which the early Christians were willing to grant full humanity to persons of every class and condition. Every class and condition. As such, Hart continues, the Christian vision of reality was nothing less than a transvaluation of all values, a profound revision of the moral and conceptual categories by which human beings understand themselves and one another and their places within the world. In the Christian vision of reality, the king is as worthy as the peasant. The courtier and the prisoner are brothers, and we are all called to care for each other accordingly. In the Christian vision of reality, every human being has inherent worth because every human being is created in the image of God. And the implication of Hart's point is profound. Our modern assumptions about the dignity of every person have their roots in and would arguably be impossible without the gospel. And this raises an important question. To what extent does our conception of human dignity depend on a familiarity with the gospel? Or to put it another way, will we be able to maintain a shared sense of human dignity 
if we forget about its origins? It's not an irrelevant question. In our society, we tend to use the language of rights when we talk about human dignity. To be fully human means that we each have certain rights, inalienable or otherwise. The challenge is that we tend to, in our secular society, think of these rights in the abstract. We struggle to articulate why we and other people are entitled to certain rights. So instead of saying, the people around me have value because they are created in the image of God, and the rights they have are ways that we acknowledge that value, we have made rights this exclusively legal category. What we are able to do or not do. The result of divorcing rights from a broader understanding of human dignity is that we have lost the sense that certain rights are absolute. By forgetting the religious origins of human dignity, in other words, we have made human dignity negotiable. And this is one of the reasons that I think today's liturgical observance is so very important. Today is Christ the King Sunday, Reign of Christ Sunday, which is weird in a democratic society. There are ways in which calling Christ King or referring to the reign of Christ feels awkward, even inappropriate in the light of what we experience elsewhere in the Gospels and indeed in our lives. There are some churches who use the sermon time to question whether it's right to call Jesus King. And yet, there is a very straightforward reason for referring to the kingship of Christ, which is this. You don't negotiate with kings, <laughs> right? Their word is law. And Christ's word throughout the Gospels, Christ's word to us in the church is that every human being has dignity. Because every human being is created in the image of God. 